heard Richard Feynman say If he was standing here today Would he look at things in a novel way Oh, what would Feynman say? Richard Feynman was one of the greatest physicists of the 20th century, which really makes him one of the greatest physicists of human civilization. He's been described as no ordinary genius. He's relentlessly quotable and frequently found in the introductions of both popular and unpopular science books. Though his physics is hard, his charisma and fascination with understanding the world makes him very approachable and alluring. So I think his influence on science went far beyond the technical because he gave other people permission to muck about. Now, they still don't muck about nearly as much as I think they should. I think it's his enthusiasm, his characteristic Brooklyn accent. Um, he paints pictures in your mind. Uh, and you're absolutely right. You get to the end and you think, wow, I understood that. So someone said there are two ways of doing, of, of solving problems in physics. One is working really hard and the other one's asking Feynman. <laughs> and I think that's probably true. I mean, the frustration when you read biographies about him uh, amongst his colleagues is that he wasn't there as often as they wanted him to be. They wanted to go into his office and say, I'm stuck, can you help? And he would probably have helped, but he was out playing the bongos in a Brazil or somewhere like that. He wasn't... And that was him. I suppose he couldn't have been any other way. Hello, I'm Robin Ince, and in this documentary, All Genius, All Buffoon, we look at the life, career, and occasionally the philosophy of the Nobel Prize-winning physicist, Richard Feynman. Physicist and contemporary of Richard Feynman, Freeman Dyson, wrote of his first meeting, when I met Feynman, I knew at once that I'd entered another world. He was not interested in publishing pretty papers. He was struggling more intensely than I had ever seen anyone struggle to understand the workings of nature by rebuilding physics from the bottom up. So what, what he did was um, establish our understanding of the interaction of light and matter, so which is electrons and photons in, in the language we discuss them now. John Butterworth is head of physics at University College London. He brought together quantum mechanics and special relativity via Dirac and people and put them in, in what we call the quantum field theory, which makes stunningly accurate predictions for the way atoms, electrons behave around atoms and the way light interacts in general. And it also actually set the language that the whole of the standard model of particle physics is now written in. So the other forces, although he didn't directly write down the theory for the weak interaction and the strong interaction, the language they're written in is very, owes a lot to the way Feynman developed quantum electrodynamics, which is the theory of photons and electrons. How true is it, it frequently quoted uh, when he said, uh, anyone who says they understand uh, quantum physics doesn't understand quantum physics. That, that's from probably, I would imagine, the first time he said that may well even be the late 50s. Yeah. Uh, now, 60 years on, how true is that? I think it's still true. Who, who's going to go up against Feynman when he says something like that, even 50 years ago? But no, I think, I think uh, there's a lot in, I think... There's a lot in quantum physics that is incomplete, that may not even be understandable in the form that quantum physics is, is currently constituted. So um, in some ways, quantum physics is a pretty terrible theory. It leaves a lot of things unanswered. It's not really, in some senses, a complete theory. It's an approach. Um, so QED, Feynman's thing, is a complete theory in a sense, but it deals with a limited subset of things in its own terms. So I think, uh, yeah, no, no one has a complete understanding of quantum mechanics and no one has a complete understanding of physics. It's the way it is, it always changes. There's always a loose end somewhere that you follow up. Feynman's approach to quantum mechanics is original and it's sort of encoded in his diagrams. It's a, 
in some sense, a very visual way of thinking. Professor Brian Cox, co-presenter of The Infinite Monkey Cage and occasional physicist himself. Oh, the diagrams, really, they're not just diagrams, that's the thing, they're calculational tools. And what Feynman's approach to quantum mechanics essentially is, is that let's say you want to calculate the probability of two electrons bouncing off each other and both appearing uh, at some angle. So, that, so they, you'd imagine like billiard balls coming to hit each other and then scattering off each other. You want to calculate that probability. Um, what you do in Feynman's approach is you, you look at, you, you assign a number essentially to every possible way that they can scatter off each other and then sort of add it all up. So it's, it's, it's called the sum over histories approach. It's almost, you could almost say that everything that can happen happens. So you, you, you've got to consider every possible path that all the particles can take in going from A to B and then add them all up. And that's really what those diagrams are, are encoding. So it's a, it's a, in some ways it sounds very counterintuitive, but it turns out to be by far the easiest way to calculate. So, so when he got the Nobel Prize with um, Schwinger and Tomonaga uh, for quantum electrodynamics, then uh, the, both the other two approaches were very mathematical and equivalent. Feynman's is the one, I think it's, it's fair to say, has survived in the way that most particle theorists would calculate things. So it's a, it's a very intuitive and pictorial and relatively easy way to work. As a particle physicist, we use Feynman diagrams all the time. I spoke to Dr Linda Cremonisi, an experimental particle physicist who works on the ANITA experiment in Antarctica hunting neutrinos. And if you follow the rules the, for which, um, you know, this squiggly line goes into this other squiggly line and then you draw something else in between, then uh, the theoretical calculation of the process becomes so much easier, so much simpler. It's a very intuitive way of uh, getting prediction for interaction rates uh, in like these tiny particles just with squiggly lines. And I find that absolutely amazing. When you can like reduce something as difficult as as, uh, and as quantum electrodynamics or quantum field theory to squiggly lines and have everyone uh, being able to draw them is absolutely amazing. Richard Feynman shared the Nobel Prize with Sinitaro Tomonaga and Julian Schwinger. Freeman Dyson looked at the differing ways in which they came to very similar results. He wrote, Schwinger and Tomonaga had independently succeeded using more laborious and complicated methods in calculating the same quantities that Feynman could derive directly from his diagrams. Schwinger and Tomonaga did not rebuild physics. They took physics as they found it and only introduced new mathematical methods to extract numbers from the physics. When it became clear that the results of their calculations agreed with Feynman, I knew that I had been given a unique opportunity to bring the three theories together. I wrote a paper with the title The Radiation Theories of Tamanaga, Schwinger and Feynman, explaining why the theories look different but were fundamentally the same. And I think that's what's very special about Feynman. Um, he had his own way of understanding and explaining virtually everything, whatever field of physics it was, you know, Newtonian mechanics or quantum mechanics or thermodynamics or whatever it is. You find an original and insightful way of looking at it when you read Feynman that's often uh, quite unique. It's often very different from the way that anybody else thinks because he's built it all back himself. And I think that's the, the sign of a brilliant physicist, uh, that, that you, 
you don't... He, he never... He, 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 he said, I think, once, that the easiest person to fool is yourself. And he never fooled himself that he understood something. He didn't use jargon, he didn't use mathematics or anything else to obscure a lack of understanding. You can see that he sat there and thought, do I understand this in the deepest possible way? And when he'd understood it in the deepest possible way, he then went and gave a lecture on it. So I remember Hans Bethe, who's one of the greatest physicists of all time, saying that Feynman was a magician. You know, he wasn't... Sometimes, uh, Bethe, I think, very famously said that often, as a physicist, you can think, well, I could do that. You know, I could, I could even perhaps have come up with that theory given enough time. If I'd just spent enough work, enough time thinking about things, I wasn't distracted. At some point in my career, I could have come up with that. And then there are people like Feynman, who's beta said are magicians. You don't know how he did it. You don't think anyone... Could anyone have come up with Feynman diagrams and that way of... That particular way of thinking and, and um, calculating things that happen in quantum mechanics? It, possibly not. Uh, it's, it's unique. It's like, where, where did that come from? And I, and I think that's probably the special thing about people. Like, you know, Feynman, uh, Einstein, you, I think you would put in that category that... Certainly with general relativity, you think, well, that was just a, an intellectual leap of a kind that's almost magical. You don't know how it came to be. And I think Feynman did that. That was Professor Brian Cox again. Though many of us may never be able to get a deep understanding of Richard Feynman's work in physics, what we can understand by watching and listening to him is why he was so drawn to understanding why our universe behaves as it does. His passion for curiosity and for questioning the world. Comedian and film director Chris Addison spoke to me about his attempt to read Richard Feynman's Six Easy Pieces. I bought Feynman's Six Easy Pieces, right? And so, so originally, Richard Feynman um, delivered these as lectures uh, uh, which were for an advanced physics class, but were kind of to, to bring them up to speed. Uh, so the idea is, you should, you should really, if you've got a brain on you, this should kind of lead you in. Great, OK. So I bought five and six easy pieces, and I read the first easy piece, and it wasn't that easy, but I got through it. And uh, in the second, I, I was sort of halfway through the second lecture, and I turned a page over and, and began to read this page, and I thought, oh, I've missed a page. And I went back, uh, and I hadn't missed a page. I, t I just kept turning it over and I couldn't see any connection between them and eventually I had to close the book and put it away and think, the, other, the, the remaining four and a half easy pieces are for the people who can do this stuff. John Butterworth again. There is a point, as, as, as a non-scientist, when, when I start with them and he talks about uh, scale, really, and, and, and uh, the idea of, of, of the atom, and then there's... As they actually, when they were put into to book, six easy pieces and then six not-so-easy pieces, there is a point, isn't there, with science, uh, I think, where the layperson does go, and now I probably really need to be going to university to understand this. I mean, yeah. is, that, is that fair to say that there is... There is because I think for a lot of people who don't try and approach science at all, and you go, well, no, 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 you can approach it, but don't necessarily think you will leave a few books having a deep understanding. I think that's true, and I think you've got to be realistic about it. What I, like, what I love about Feynman's lectures, and I think any good teacher or, or public um, engagement that's done about science is it somehow should manage to do both of those. It should, should... If you just come in with the big ideas and give a broad-brush approach, people can go, wow, gee, that's amazing, but they don't see that it's made up of careful steps of, of skill and logic, and you get that, of course, from Feynman's lectures, but 
you, you can't possibly follow that all the way through without having a degree. Um, you, you would have had, if you did follow it all the way, you might as well go and sit a degree because you'd pass it. You know? <laughs> so, so there is that balance of like you, you want to see how how something is done in principle that's different from having to have done it all yourself. Right? And, and I think that that balance is really important and really good. And you do. Um, I saw a lecture, um, well, I went to see a film yesterday at the East End Film Festival. It's filmed by Nick Franco of Stephen Hawking and his collaborators talking about um, the beginning of the universe. And, and I must admit, I lost it after about 15 minutes. And I'm a, I'm a PhD physics professor, you know. And, and um, so what are the rest of the audience making of it? And in the end, what you get is not so much the details that you could go and re-derive those equations for the wave function of the universe. What you're doing is getting a feeling for how it's done and what the direction is and what kind of things it can tell you and the way they think about it and the way they're building it up and therefore why it's different from just making it all up, if you see what I mean. Yeah. It's that the depth of understanding of, of the subject was such that he could pitch it to anybody, i.e. me. You know, I, there I was a sort of a... Uh, scientifically untrained listener. Christopher Sykes, who made the Feynman documentary Pleasure of Finding Things Out, and also the series Fun to Imagine. But if you watch the way he explains these things in The Pleasure of Finding Things Out and in the Fun to Imagine things, which are, you know, science for non-scientists, it's so beautifully done in such a way that he, 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 he makes you... It isn't that he's leaving stuff out, it's that he's, he's telling it at a level that's appropriate for whoever's listening. He couldn't explain everything, of course, to a non-scientist for the reason that he gives in the, in the pleasure of finding things out. He says that, that unless you understand mathematics, you know, you really can't appreciate the full depth of, you know, physical understanding of nature and so on. You just simply can't because odd though it may be, the language that, it, that it's expressible and understandable in is mathematics. And so that you have to know maths um, if you're going to understand very much. And that's why at some point in, when we did this series called Fun to Imagine, where he sits in an armchair explaining a few things, and I ask him about magnets, why they repel and why they attract, and what the feeling of repulsion between two magnets is. And I didn't realise, of course, what sort of a question it is. It's a, it turns out to be, of course, a very profound question. I didn't know that. And uh, he's, he takes, goes to some trouble to explain why he's not going to be able to explain to me, a non-physicist, how they work um, without cheating, you know, but he's not going to cheat. He's not going to use analogies or pretend that he's explaining it in a way that would satisfy me. He he's, he's, pays me and the audience, I think, the compliment of saying, look, you don't know enough to understand the answer I would have to give you, so I'm not going to be able to give you one. In Richard Feynman's lecture, The Value of Science, he talked about standing at the seashore. And he said, there are the rushing waves, mountains of molecules, each stupidly minding its own business, trillions apart, yet forming white surf in unison. Ages on ages, before any eyes could see, year after year, thunderously pounding the shore as now. For whom? For what? On a dead planet with no life to entertain. Never at rest, tortured by energy wasted prodigiously by the sun poured into space. A might makes the sea rule. Deep in the sea, all molecules repeat the patterns of one another till complex new ones are formed. They make others like themselves. And a new dance starts. 
growing in size and complexity, living things, masses of atoms, DNA, protein, dancing a pattern ever more intricate. Out of the cradle, onto dry land, here it is standing, atoms with consciousness, matter with curiosity, stands at the sea, wonders at wondering. I, a universe of atoms, an atom in the universe. You also saw another side of him, which was like his curiosity towards the, the whole of the world. And my favorite bit in the book was when, um, when he was talking about the things that you know and the things that you don't know. Dr. Linda Cremonisi again. It's good to not know things. And I, I realized that's what physics is. Physics is all about, um, we know this quantity with this particular error, with this particular uncertainty until you measure it and you measure it a little bit better. Or it's just like if you look at the history of physics is uh, when, um, I don't know, 100 years ago, we were like, everything is made of atoms and atoms is the smallest thing that we could possibly have as far as we know at the time, and then you go into it, and he's like, oh, no, actually, no, atoms can be broken down into a nuclei and electrons, and then it, again, and it goes on. And I, I found that that was really the principle of physics uh, in general, that this, this is what we know at the moment, and we need to keep going, and that it's a process, if you want, a never-ending process to this seek of knowledge. Christopher Sykes. Um, we all exist on a spectrum of how curious we are. Feynman was obviously insatiably curious, uh, not just about scientific things, but about um, all kinds of things, like, like a country in the centre of Asia called Tanyutuva, which no-one had heard of for a long time, which he, for a decade or so, with his friend Ralph Layton, became really obsessed by this place and finding out absolutely everything they could. So curiosity, yeah, I would have thought curiosity is the great driver, obviously, of science and, and uh, well, and should be of pretty well everything else, I guess. Curiosity, yeah. You know, and he tells this story of the spinning plates that he was mucking aboard one day and he thought he'd have a look at the physics of spinning plates and it turns out the same bit of mathematics was useful, was the thing that started him thinking along that line of thought. I spoke to Dr Helen Chersky, physicist and author of Storm in a Teacup. Ideas for science come from lots of places and you get a long way with playing with stuff. And people forget that because serious science, if you like, is often quite predictable. You have this sensible idea and you find something out and it takes you to the next sensible idea. But it's when you're mucking about doing stuff that you don't really think, you're just playing. That's when you find the things you didn't expect to find. And so it doesn't matter, I don't think, whether the idea that bit of science was wrong or not. I mean, I'm sure his derivation of the physics came that came from it wasn't wrong that's the important bit but where the the inspiration comes from because quite often you'll see something that's funny so i've got just oh it's not there anymore. you see that there's a jar with a yellow thing at the top mm. so what that is is a jar of shampoo and i prepared it for my lectures for a buoyancy demonstration it's got a little thing in it which floats and sinks and i'd put black dye in it uh i'd colored the, the the floating thing with black dye felt it pen and i left it and i finished my lecture and i put it there and I left it. And three weeks later, I noticed all these swirly patterns. They're, they've mixed in now, but there were these beautiful swirly patterns in the shampoo. And I realised there was convection going on. And the dye was coming off the floating thing and moving. It was showing that a shampoo bottle has... All those shampoo bottles sitting on your bathroom shelf that you think are innocent and are not doing anything, the shampoo is moving in response to the heat fields. And I saw that there. And I you know, and it... And I had no idea that was happening. And it only happened because I made a slightly silly demonstration for a lecture. And once you've got that, you can do things with it, right? So this process of just... 
you've got to do silly things to observe the things you didn't expect to see. And I think that is one of the reasons that Feynman was so successful, is that he did the silly things and then used his technical mind uh, and huge technical ability to analyse the thing that he hadn't expected to see. And it's so terrible that there's this snobbishness that says, oh, you should do it properly. Because why, right? If you're not doing slightly mad things, you'll never see anything that wasn't in your worldview to start with. So I think that's part of his success. Yeah, Feynman was allowed to teach anything he liked and he got very interested in the, the, the limitations of computers. Author and physicist Marcus Chown. And he did this course called Potentialities and Limitations of Computers. So I, I did this course and he shared the lectures with a guy called Jerry Sussman from MIT who knew a lot about this subject. And it was very clear that the, the, the course existed so that Feynman could pump him for information. So Sussman would, would, would lecture half of the uh, lectures and Feynman the others. I should mention that this is the first time I ever heard the, the term quantum computer. Feynman was thinking about quantum computers, which was now, you know, is a real buzzword now. Quantum computers, can, if, they, if they can be built, will completely outperform uh, conventional computers, but Feynman had realised that eventually we're going to shrink computers down to the size of atoms and we will have to use quantum theory. Uh, but anyway, uh, the interesting thing was that he would, um, uh, half a half the lectures, he would be in the audience. So you might find yourself sitting next to Richard Feynman in the audience. And it was really interesting to see the way he functioned because he would ask 20 or 30 questions if he didn't understand something. And the average student would ask maybe one or two, and then they think, oh, God, I, I, I must be really stupid. But Feynman would ask 30 questions. The entire lecture would be stopped because he just thought if he didn't understand it, they weren't being clear. When Freeman Dyson wrote to his parents in England about meeting Richard Feynman, he described him as half genius and half buffoon. Though later, he would change that to he was all genius and all buffoon. At Los Alamos, he used to pick the locks uh, and still the, 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 well, he used to pick the locks on the safes that contained the most valuable secret in the history of the world, and he would leave messages in saying, guess who? But of course, this was part of his myth-making, and he later admitted, of course, that he was no better at picking, uh, uh, you know, breaking into safes than anyone else. But he used just common sense, you know, he knew that the people may have used their birthdays, as the combination, so it was, it was always that. And he said that's, of course, what, what safe pickers use as well. They, they don't have, actually have any magical abilities. So I think he, uh, very early on he was a bit of a showman. I spoke to Particle Physics Research Associate on Super Nemo, Dr Cheryl Patrick. I think it can particularly give confidence to maybe people, like, say, from a less fancy school or if not had, like, I think... I definitely noticed a difference between people who'd been to Eton and knew the right way to talk about things and those of us who had not. And I think there's a confidence like if you can be interested and try to understand things, like you have just as much chance as the person who knows exactly the right way to talk about it. It doesn't make you more impressive. I've seen that as well. You know, so I go to a lot of conferences now. All physicists go to a lot of conferences. And the first time I went, I saw people using these long words and explaining these things. I thought, I don't know what that is. I must be very stupid. And then after a while, I thought, actually, the best lecturers are the people who manage to talk about it and they don't have to use the long words. And I found myself, when I don't 
understand something very well. It's like, I'll write down the name of the theorem and no-one can say I'm wrong. <laughs> it seems remarkable now that Richard Feynman did not become well-known until very near the end of his life with the publication of Surely You're Joking, Mr Feynman, a collection of anecdotes about his idiosyncratic approach to both physics and existence. I, I can't think of anybody since him who is more easily accessible, except maybe Stephen Hawking, to our side of physics, I guess, maybe in different fields, but in a kind of high-energy physics. I don't think there's anybody else who would be more of a current name on the lips than Stephen Hawking, maybe. And even he's kind of something else, he's astrophysics. He's the relatable person, I think, when you're new and you're starting out of the physicist, he seems kind of more achievable. Like, even if you'll never be as clever as him, maybe you can be a guy like him, I guess, <laughs> can try and get a bit of the personality and a bit of the enthusiasm because he seemed like he had a good laugh with physics. And some people do not seem like they're having a laugh. And you spend a lot of time in physics not having a laugh. So it's he's kind of a reminder that it can be fun and why you thought you wanted to do it in the first place and to try and let it go and have like a good time and be interested in the things that were why you wanted to do that job. Yeah, well, he, he was an icon. Uh, he, he was... Maybe what you what people think of, if, even if they don't know him today, but they, they know Stephen Hawking, and it's the way the average public thinks of Stephen Hawking is how physicists thought of Feynman back in that you know back in that day. Len Milodnov, author of Feynman's Rainbow and Elastic, and also co-author with Stephen Hawking of A Briefer History of Time and The Grand Design. He was not only known for his brilliant physics, but for a different way of looking at things and for having a very uh, interesting and compelling outlook at the whole world from art to, to literature to philosophy to science. He was kind of a cult hero. And I was, I was working on, I was actually, when I, when I, one of the first times I went to, to talk to him, I was working on a, on a problem where I was applying my PhD work in another area. And I, it didn't, I was trying to work on, uh, on applying it to, to, to a theory that someone else had come up with that was fairly well known in that field, and it wasn't working out. It was my work was contradicting that work. So I went to him thinking maybe he could help me see what I was doing wrong. <laughs> and uh, he said, well, have you worked out that other fellow's stuff yourself, or did you just read his paper and follow along what he's saying? See, this is elastic versus not elastic thinking because I'm just following the, what he's saying. I'm not thinking for myself. He says, well, I, well, until you do that, how do you know you're wrong? Maybe he's wrong. And that was like, really? Oh, maybe I should have the confidence to think that maybe I know what I'm doing or the creativity to, to look at it differently. And, and let me see what he's saying and let me try and figure it out for myself. And I realized that not only that he was wrong, but I realized why he was wrong. And I got my stuff published and it uh, was, became popular. <laughs> I went to see Nicholas Booth, author of The Thieves of Threadneedle Street and once the youngest person who worked for NASA in quite a noisy cafe, as you'll find out. Because I've got this summer job at the Jack Postal Laboratory with a guy called Al Hibbs, who was one of Feynman's very few PhD students. So this day, one day in August 1981, they invited some people over, and these people turned up. There's this guy called Dick and his wife and the kids. One was younger than me, one was older. And I'd got a vague notion of who he was, but... You know, in the same way it might be meeting Saul Bellow and knew he wrote or something like that. Six months later, there's the horizon that Chris Sykes made of uh, Feynman just talking to the camera, which is absolutely mesmeric. 
And the interesting thing about meeting Feynman the previous summer was, he was like that, whether you put a camera on him, whether he was talking to, I don't know, a bus conductor or whatever. He was, he was always the same. There was no act. That was him. So the next thing was, you know, a year later, I start university, first day of the course. Um, there's two things I remember. The first one was Feynman's lectures. So it was like, my Lord. Because at the time, he was well-known in the world of science. And certainly in California, he was quite well-known for his eccentricities. But he wasn't this great name. And then within a couple of years, Surely You're Joking came out. And, and most famously, the Challenger investigation, which was, yeah, in an odd way, kind of made his name or made his, an imprint on the consciousness of people who wouldn't otherwise have known who he was. And then after his death, it, there's been this sort of, yeah, for want of a better expression, Feynman industry. And I just c consider myself very, very lucky at the age of 17 in a kind of Faulknerian idiot savant way, met this great physicist, but had no idea who he was. And he was exactly as you, as you see him now and how he's recorded. An important part of Richard Feynman's worldview, and a worldview that is very contagious, is expressed in the first few moments of the Horizon documentary, The Pleasure of Finding Things Out. Richard Feynman explains, I have a friend who's an artist, and sometimes he says something I don't agree with very well. He says, when I see a flower, I see the beauty of the flower. When you see a flower, you pick it apart, and it becomes a dull thing. And as Feynman says, I think he's kind of nutty. And then he goes on to explain that not merely can he observe the beauty of the flower, if not in quite such a refined aesthetic way as his artist friend, he's also able to view the flower on a molecular level, on an atomic level. He's able to think about the aesthetic nature of the flower and why it has evolved that way. And as he sums it up, the thing about science is that it doesn't subtract, it only adds. Christopher Sykes. Yeah, so the thing that really got me interested in science was Freeman Dyson's book, Disturbing the Universe. This was about 1979, I read it, I think. And uh, as a result of reading that book, I, I, I went to see Freeman Dyson to ask whether he'd be interested in making a documentary based on the book for Horizon, which I was working on then. Um, and he said, yeah, he'd, he'd be quite happy to make a film, but he thought it was much more important that I should make a film about Richard Feynman. Uh, and so uh, I went to see Feynman, who wasn't at all keen on making a documentary to begin with, or so I thought. I came to realize he was testing me out in some way, I think, to see, just to find out a bit about me. Well, what happened was I phoned Feynman from England and I said, um, would he be interested in making a film for the, for the BBC Horizon series about his life and work? And he said he wasn't really, no. He was very busy and it didn't really interest him. And then I, I told a lie. I said, well, I'm coming to Los Angeles next month um, for various reasons. And while I'm there, do you think I might be able to come and see you for 10 minutes or so? And he said, uh, yeah, you could do that. He said, don't come specially, but if, you, if you're here anyway, um, why don't you come and see me after my 11 o'clock lecture on such and such a day at Caltech where he was professor. So I went to this lecture. I thought I'd go and watch the lecture just to see what it was like. And of course, I couldn't understand anything. It was very high level. There were about sort of eight guys sitting around in shorts with their feet up. Nobody was taking any notes. And Feynman was giving a lecture on God knows what. I couldn't understand a thing except right near the end. He looked up at the clock and it said five to 12. And Feynman said, uh, 
He said, this thing we're talking about, there's two ways of dealing with it. Of, uh, one is very messy and ugly and complicated, and the other's exquisitely elegant and very, very simple. He said, but we've only got five minutes, so I'll just tell you about the ugly and complicated one. And that seemed pretty funny. So anyway, I met him after the lecture. We went to his office, and he sat in his chair, I remember, and he looked, he put his hands behind his head, and he said, yes, sir, and uh, waited. And I, was, I felt nervous about it probably because he was a Nobel laureate and somewhat intimidating. Anyway, I blathered on about sorts of ideas that I had and so on, and he didn't look at all impressed. And then he said, I think all this sounds really dumb, but, but I'll tell you what, let's go down and have some lunch. And he took me to this cafe that he used to go to. He didn't like going to the Athenaeum, the faculty club at Caltech, because he thought it was sort of stuck up and you had to wear a tie, I think. He didn't like going there. He liked to go down the road to what he called the greasy spoon and he always had soup so we had some soup and and uh you know it was, it was all right but i found it very frustrating because i i could see he wasn't going to make a film that was my feeling i thought he just wasn't interested um and and uh but he was he was he was sort of saying oh you're you're an english graduate you know i don't see the point of you know literature and all that sort of stuff and and, and i i said to him that I thought he was being rather arrogant in this sort of blanket dismissal of anything outside science. I thought I've got nothing to lose. And I felt a bit irritated and I said that. And then he sat back and it was quite funny and he smiled a bit and he said, well, I'll tell you. He said, uh, I did read a novel once. He said it was called Madame Bovary and it was kind of nifty. And then he winked. And then I sort of thought, well, maybe this has all been some sort of test and so on. And he, he said, look, if you want to make a film, um, Tell me what you want to do, and I'll tell you whether I want to do it or not. And, uh, and then what we did was decided the best thing was to sit him down in a chair, ask him to take, a, take us right through his life, and then see what to do next, you know, in terms of making a television program. Well, he was so riveting and so fantastic, the way he talked. I mean, I've never come across anything like it. And it was quite clear when we got into the cutting room, there wasn't really any need to do anything, you know, except, uh, except just put in a few pauses here and there, a couple of narrative captions, and maybe one or two stills of various points in his life. Um, just to slow it up, if anything, because, you know, no matter how interesting somebody is, if they're, if they keep on being interesting for too long, then you wish they'd shut up. But, so we put in these pauses, and then we finished up with this 15 minute program, which we called The Pleasure of Finding Things Out his phrase, um, and, uh, you know, and people really liked it. I'm glad to say he did too. It's quite funny because I, I thought, you know, sometimes you show people the rough cut of the film to see if, there, if there's anything they don't like about it or anything just as a courtesy thing, really. And um, I said to Feynman, do you want me to send a copy of the rough cut and you can watch it and make comments and so on? He said, no, I don't want to see it. I've got absolutely no interest in in seeing it at all. He said, I mean, if the film's any good, that's to your credit. And if it's lousy, well, that's your problem. <laughs> but actually, he did like it. He, he did write and say he really liked it. In fact, what he said is very funny. He, he wrote, he, when his book came out, which he wrote a couple of years later, surely you're joking, Mr. Feynman. And he sent me a copy of the book, which was nice. And in the front, he wrote, after your program, people think I'm wise. So I've had to publish this to redress the balance. This this documentary was was made. It was this three three days of uh, interviews were shrunk down to about fifty minutes. Marcus Chown. And all you see is Feynman's basically head and shoulders, 
and he talked for 50, 50 minutes, 55 minutes, incredibly engagingly. And my mum has no interest whatsoever in science and, you know, cannot understand why people in Australia aren't standing on their head or they don't fall off or anything like that. Uh, but at the end of it, she said, what an interesting man. So when I went to Caltech as a student in 1982, I very kind of um, nervously went up in the lift to his office in the physics building and I kind of very, you know, very quietly knocked on his door. And when he opened it, I, I explained that my mother had got no interest in physics at all, but she'd listened to him and she thought he was very interesting. And I said, is it possible you could write to her because then I might have a better chance of teaching her physics. And incredibly, and, and I thought, because I'd seen him on television, that he was approachable. I mean, I don't know, it's bizarre, isn't it? This is something really bizarre. Seeing Feynman on t TV, I thought he would not think this is frivolous. And he didn't. And he wrote to my mum, and, and, and I can't remember the, the, the actual words, but in effect it said, Dear Mrs Chown, ignore your sons to teach you physics. Physics is not the most important thing. Love is Richard Feynman. So it backfired on me. I got the world's greatest living physicist telling my mum that physics was not important. Yes, well, his approach to life, he had, and so does Stephen, they both had their unique approaches to life, which was not really detached from their approach to physics. Lennon Blodnoff again. It was, it's a love of exploration and knowledge, but it was also a very steely inner, inner strength and determination to do it your way and to look at it your way and uh, to be able to push that through to, to, uh, to success. So they, they were not people who accepted either failure, even though, I mean, they, they accepted that they would have failures, but they knew they, if they kept going, they would get somewhere. And they didn't accept the conventional way of looking at things. And I think that physicists and non-physicists alike find that very uh, refreshing and important. Professor Brian Cox. Is clarity of thought in physics transferred to a clarity of thought about human affairs. And that, I think, marks him out. There's very few... Einstein would probably be another one, actually. But there are very few top theoretical physicists, I think, that, that could swap... that could take their mind and transfer it so easily between disciplines. Not only scientific disciplines, but also philosophy and politics and reflections on the world, and I think Feynman did that. So he reveals himself as, uh, he, he reveals his human side extremely well. Marcus Chown. He was physics with a human face, that he had a lot of fun and he communicated that fun to other people, and this is why he was well loved. I mean, when he died, uh, there was this, in, at Caltech there's this giant uh, library uh, about 13 stories high, which is actually built on rollers so that uh, when they have earthquakes, it just swings backwards and forwards. Uh, and, and the students just spontaneously had this huge great banner, which they dropped from the top saying, we love you, Dick. So he was very, very popular, very well liked. But as with all people, he would have a dark side, of course. But for me to tell you his dark side would be like uh, telling you about the dark side of Princess Diana. No one would want, well, no one would want to hear it. Dr Linda Cremonisi again. In, uh, in one of his tales about the Manhattan Project, and he was talking about how, um, he, I think he was a graduate student or an early postdoc at the time, and, uh, and they weren't really, or at least he wasn't really realizing what they were doing. And the moment in which they actually sort of like 
made me realize that maybe Feynman was not perfect was when uh, he said that um, in the moment in which the uh, first bomb uh, was released on Hiroshima, uh, he went out and got drunk and celebrated. And, uh, and that was something that was just like, wow. They danced around and celebrated. He only later realized wait a minute, they weren't building the bomb to drop it on Japan. They were building it because they were worried that the Nazis were going to develop an atomic bomb. So he realised later, only later, that the, that the goalposts had shifted. Um, so I think that was a, a, a real problem for him and he did not participate in the development of a hydrogen bomb. So people like Edward Teller uh, and even John Wheeler, who was actually Feynman's supervisor, at, um, for his PhD, even though it was only a few years later, they worked on, on the H-bomb and Feynman didn't. In many ways, he was a, he was a fantastic physicist and, and, and he was everything that everyone thinks he was. But he could be quite harsh to uh, young physicists, you know. And I do remember um, being told that he'd gone to a talk by a woman who gave a talk on uh, tokamaks, which are these magnetic bottles for containing fusion and and uh, at the end she said what we need is to continue our research is a bigger tokamak and he said what you need is a bigger brain uh which which is which would be devastating coming from someone like Richard Feynman I mean you'd give up and go and work in a petrol station wouldn't you really but of course he was a person of his generation you know I mean uh, you know he, he he famously I think wrote about his tech techniques of picking up women in bars. Yes, he was fantastic. He, his contributions to physics were amazing, but his behaviour was also not acceptable. It was probably acceptable at the time, but that's because there were different times, but we should not restrain right now. In the essay, What Do You Care What Other People Think? from the book of the same name, Richard Feynman recalled his relationship with his first wife, Arlene and her eventual death from a rare form of tuberculosis. It brought on many thoughts about the nature of mortality. As he wrote, it's hard to explain. If a Martian, who will imagine never dies except by accident, came to Earth and saw this peculiar race of creatures, these humans who live about 70 or 80 years, knowing that death is going to come, it would look to him like a terrible problem of psychology to live under those circumstances, knowing that life is only temporary. Well we humans somehow figure out how to live despite this problem. We laugh, we joke, we live. The only difference for me and Arlene was instead of 50 years, it was five years. It was only a quantitative difference. The psychological problem was just the same. I think he had a, a very clear a love of nature, first of all. Professor Brian Cox. Uh, undoubtedly appropriate awe for the, for the majesty of the natural world and thought about it a lot. Which is one of the reasons he said he wanted to write the Feynman lectures. He wanted to go back to first principles and understand all of physics for himself. And that's essentially what he does in the Feynman lectures. So deride the whole thing. So he understood the lot. And then, and, uh, but also, I think he genuinely thought, as I do, that the, the way that you have to think in order to do science, or theoretical physics in his case, is it, you can transfer that to other, other parts of the human endeavour, be, be that, as you said, philosophy or politics or the way to run a society. 
all those things. I think there. I'm not saying that you can. That's all you need. You need lots of other things as well. But that way, that clarity of thought that is necessary to do theoretical physics can also be applied to the benefit of other areas. And that's what he genuinely thought. Dr Helen Chersky. I think a lot of, for me, the boundary between physics and philosophy is usually only that you can come up with a falsifiable experiment for physics and you can't for philosophy. But, but rigorous thought takes you to a lot of the same places. And you do see it, especially in that kind of field where you're dealing with weird quantum stuff, you do have to question the nature of reality because that is your job. And whether you're doing it mathematically or conceptually, it's still the same game, right? You have to ask, what is the point of all this? So, I, I, yeah, he does... I think there is a... You know, scientists don't often recognise that they have a different perspective on the world because of the technical stuff that they know. Um, but it's really important to share that perspective and it sort of becomes philosophy after a while because if you're talking about a worldview, that's philosophy far more than it's physics. But you have a different worldview because you, you know, your mind can zoom in on the, you know, the little atoms in my laptop in front of me here or, you know, the cells that make up the wood of my desk. You have this sort of zoom in and out facility and it changes your perspective and it, that means it changes your worldview and that means it changes your philosophy. So I think they are, they're all linked. It's just that you have to get around to to using that perspective and once you start to share it why i mean philosophy is often seen as a, a bad word i think by some scientists because it's not testable can't write it down can't write question um but you know you have to have a philosophy to be human whether you think you have or not you have to have a worldview because you can't stay sane without some idea of your place in the world so i think these great you know that's he was able to make that connection between the philosophy the worldview Maybe he wouldn't have called it philosophy, but it's the worldview that comes with such an all-seeing view of science. It's not that scientists know everything, but we do know quite a lot about what stuff's made from, and that those are the building blocks of a worldview. Nicholas Booth told me this while some people in the background used the noisiest coffee machine in history. And that's the other thing about his stories. People say, oh, you know, he used to joke and exaggerate. He was, you know, as, he could saw it off by the yard. He was as funny and as clever and as witty and as charming as, as he appeared. It wasn't an act at all because, you know, he was a showman. There's no question of that. But he was what you saw. You, if he was here now, he'd be talking to us as we're talking now. There was, there was no airs and graces. He had this childhood sweetheart, Arlene, that he married. Um, and, and he had a desperate time at Los Alamos because she moved to uh, a hospital, effectively a hospice in Albuquerque, which was quite a distance from, I don't know what it was, an hour, two hours by car from Los Alamos. And while he was working on this, the atomic bomb project, which must have been an all-consuming thing, he, he was constantly shuttling backwards and forwards to see her, and of course she died. Uh, and then of course, he wasn't able to grieve for it, and in fact in one of his uh, books, uh, he writes that it was only several years later when he was going past a dress shop in Albuquerque that he just broke down in tears, you know. So, you know, I, I think he had a hard time. Then that would have changed his his whole um, view of, of relationships. You know, this one had been so ephemeral. So I think he then went a bit mad. He married someone very quickly that he'd met in Brazil who he got divorced from. She, I think, complained that he was always calculating all the time. 
Um, so it was only in later life that he got perhaps some more balance in his, in his life. He was married to a, a woman from Yorkshire for about 30 years, Glenys, towards the end of his life. So this, this more balanced Feynman that we all know may be the Feynman of, of latter years. I mean, anybody knows that to do anything well, you have to put a lot of effort in, whether you want to play the violin or you want to be a physicist. To be a front-ranked physicist, you have to be thinking about physics pretty much every waking minute. Even as he sat with his dying wife, his curiosity was still at work. In the room, he said he kept imagining all the things that were going on physiologically. The lungs aren't getting enough air into the blood, which makes the brain fogged out, and the heart weaker, which makes the breathing even more difficult. He said that he kept expecting some sort of avalanching effect, with everything caving in together in dramatic collapse. But then he realised it wasn't like that at all. She just slowly got more foggy, and her breathing gradually became less and less, until there was no more breath. But just before that, there was a very small one. He also recalled leaning over and smelling her hair. After Arlene had died, he recalled leaning over and giving her one final kiss, and then noticing the smell of her hair. And what surprised him was the fact that the hair smelled exactly the same. As he said, to me, it was a shock, because in my mind, something enormous had just happened. And yet, nothing had happened. After Arlene had died, Richard Feynman returned to Los Alamos and tried to immerse himself in his work as much as possible. He just wanted to get on with everything. But then he found himself being bothered by dreams. One night he said he had a dream and Arlene came into it and right away he said to her, no, 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 you can't be in this dream, you're not alive. And then he had another dream with Arlene in it. And in that dream, she explained that yes, she could be in the dream because she fooled him. I was tired of you, so I cooked up this ruse so I could go my own way. But now I like you again, so I've come back. He explained that his mind was really working against itself. He said it finally hit him when, one day, perhaps a month after she had died, he walked past a department store in Oak Ridge and noticed a pretty dress in the window. And he thought, Arlene would like that. And that was when it hit him. Singer and songwriter Grace Petrie wrote this about Richard Feynman's letter to his late wife, Arlene. in a rational mind That's why I don't want to leave you behind You know we had a hell of a good time Well I find it hard to know in my head What it means to love you after you are dead To write these things to you that I can't send But I know they'll be as true unsaid So I want to tell you To tell you I love you And I want to love you And always will love you 
think of our adventures all the way We never have the time to do and see Without you now they hold nothing for me Only you are left in reality ever in that place You know I wouldn't have it any other way And I want to tell you To tell you I love you And I want to love you And always will love you Tell you I love you And I want to love you And always will love you Well some things are just an accident of life My wife is dead And I love my wife People should be aware that, that Feynman was a great physicist, but if, the, if one of the first things they know about him is just that he's a great communicator or he's an amazing character, why not? You know, people get their, their gateway into physics in all kinds of different ways, and he's clearly a, a kind of iconic figure in 20th century physics, which in, in, in a way that probably no one else is really. I mean, Einstein is equally iconic or more, more iconic, but, but in a different way, it's a different kind of character. It's good. I mean, he was a big role model for me, if you want, as well, because um, you see him and you're like, you know, he's a normal person. He's, he's not absolutely just obsessed about his work. He has a bunch of other interests. He has a life outside physics, and that's all you want at the end. You want a sort of work-life balance. <laughs> and, and that's one of the things that I liked about him the most, the fact that you could see that he was a whole person, human. Uh, in general. Yes, it was fun to him. Science was fun to him. You see other physicists and it's about politics and it's about, you know, getting to the top and having influence over funding committees. But for Feynman, it was pure fun. And in fact, the Nobel Prize, he, 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 he was going to turn down because he thought, I'm going to be one of these physicists who doesn't get to do fun things. I think it's... Some of, what you see in, in the Feynman lectures is this intense attention to detail. And it's that, that thing, don't fool yourself, that you understand. And you see that someone who is going to go all the way back to make sure they understand every single bit of something. And there's certainly a strong element of that, I think, in Feynman. He gave permission, and that 
there's the challenger and there's the you know the Nobel Prize winning material, but fundamentally, he gave people permission to do science differently, and that is a huge contribution. Artist and Richard Feynman admirer Natalie K. Thatcher put together a short comic book based on some of Richard Feynman's thoughts around a glass of wine. The whole universe in a glass of wine. A poet once said, the whole universe is in a glass of wine. We will never know in what sense he meant that. The poets don't write to be understood. But it is true that if you look at a glass of wine closely enough, you will see the entire universe. There are the things of physics, the twisting liquid which evaporates depending on the wind and weather, the reflections in the glass, and our imagination adds the atoms. The glass is a distillation of the Earth's rocks, and in its composition, we see the secrets of the universe's age and the evolution of the stars. What strange array of chemicals are in the wine? How did they come to be? There are the ferments, the enzymes, the substrates, and the products. There in the wine is the great generalization. All life is fermentation. Nobody can discover the chemistry of wine without discovering, as did Louis Pasteur, the cause of much disease. How vivid is the claret, pressing its existence into the consciousness that watches it. If our small minds, for some convenience, divide this glass of wine, this universe into parts, and so on, Remember that nature doesn't know it. Let us put it all back together, not forgetting ultimately what it is for. Let it give us one more final pleasure. Drink it up and forget about it all. This documentary was produced by Trent Burton and is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. For more documentaries, podcasts and live events for people with curious minds, check out CosmicShambles.com. This documentary was made possible by the generous support of our Patreon supporters. You can pledge too at Patreon.com slash Bookshambles. 